Ranking the Beatles is our podcast show. Ranking the Beatles. There's lots of songs. I don't know. That's not great. Not my best effort. I don't even know what song that is. Uh, my Hero by Foo Fighters. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, not your best not effort. Not my best effort. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, that was truly off the top of the head. Off, yeah. the, off the cuff. Off the cuff. Sorry. It's the best I got today. That's okay. I mean, I we're, how many episodes in are we? 61. Rank of the Beatles episode 61. That's the first time I've been like. <laughs> but we're going right. to keep it. We're going to keep it on tape. Warts and all. We're giving you guys the real life experience. Except for the one where I sang it. I was like. People love that one. Though. I don't know what you're talking about. I, no one loved that. I you're don't. just being self-conscious. Hey, it's okay. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it that. We'll call it. Uh, <laughs> welcome, everybody, to Ranking the Beatles, episode 61. I'm your host, Jonathan. Over here to my left, probably right up the middle for you, if you're listening in headphones, is my lovely partner in crime. Oh, it's Julia. <laughs> it's, it's Julia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hope everybody's doing well. How are you this week, my dear? How are um, things? I'm very tired. I'm tired. It's been a weird, uh, a weird couple of days. I've had, a, I've had like a cold the last couple of days. Like uh-huh. I had like a fever, and yes. a whole thing. And it's been uh, not the best, but you know, we're but it's getting better. It's Halloween weekend. We yeah. went somewhere. I stayed out past my bedtime. You did. I'm proud of you, though. Yeah. I'm proud of you. I'm paying for it now. I yeah. need my my three to four day recovery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of fluids. Lots of soups. Yeah. <laughs> lots of soups. <laughs> We're getting better, though. We're trying to recover. Don't have the fever anymore. Feel, feel a good bit better. Today has been an up day, so I'll take that. Um, when this episode comes out next week, you know what it's going to be next week? My birthday! You see, it's my birthday! It's actually my birthday! It will actually be my birthday next week when this episode drops. comes out on Tuesday. My birthday is on Thursday, November 11th. So... Happy birthday to me. Yes. I'm very excited for your birthday. It feels very narcissistic. I'm not going to lie. Why? I don't know. Um, it does. Maybe I'll do a big thing for my birthday. Maybe you should. Next year. You should. I probably won't. You know I hate birthdays. <laughs> it's mean, actually a struggle to plan yours because I don't like birthdays. Yeah. So, but you do. So I have to like force myself to mm. do a birthday thing for mm. you. The birthday obligation. Always yeah. appreciated. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. I lo- but I'm doing it because I love you. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, that pu- I'm pushing through my lack of giving a shit oh, about man. birthdays. Thank you. I'm pushing through. You're so sweet. You're so good to me. <laughs> Y'all, I'm the luckiest boy in town. Don't, don't, don't ever be convinced otherwise. The luckiest boy in town. Are you being sarcastic? Not at all. <gasps> <laughs> I love you very much. That's very sweet. I told you I'm pushing through my not giving a are, shit about birthdays to care it. about your birthday. I know you are, and I appreciate man. it. I appreciate it. Man. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Slice of life of, uh, of marriage right here. <laughs> this is how it works. <laughs> uh, anyhow, gang, let's turn our attention to the topic at hand, shall we? Uh, I don't know. Mm. Do you want to talk about your birthday some more? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anywho, let's talk about our guest this week. 
1986, our guest this week has been researching the life of John Lennon for what's targeted to be a nine-volume work, the John Lennon series. Uh, since 2007, she's released five of the nine volumes. Uh, she's, at, she's earned a reputation as a leading expert on the life of John Lennon. She's been a featured speaker uh, at conventions and symposiums throughout the world. Her books are considered some of the definitive books on John Lennon. Do a little edit here. Uh, she's also a monthly blogger for the Fest for Beatles fans. Uh, she writes a monthly column for Culture Sonar called Lennon Matters. Uh, she's written two or three times a year for Beatle Fan Magazines. She does free webinars throughout the year about uh, John and Beatles called Focal Points. All kinds of stuff. She knows her stuff when it comes to John and the Beatles. Uh, her newest book, in, the newest book out in the series, uh, is entitled Shades of Life, just out this past October on the 9th, the man's birthday. Uh, but it's available now wherever you get your fine books. And... She just lives like a few hours up the road in North Louisiana. Who would have thunk? Who knew we had neighbors that were so into the Louisiana Beatles? coming correct with Beatle <laughs> fandom. I got to say, pretty proud of our little state. Well job, Boot. So, well let's... job. <laughs> well, well done, Boot. <laughs> I'm leaving that in there. Well, well job, Governor. Anyhow, friends, let's get to it. Please welcome to the show, and I have to do my best to not say the obvious thing when we meet her. Uh, please welcome to the show, Jude Kessler. Jude Kessler, welcome to the show. How are you? I am just so thrilled to be here. I'm a fan of yours. Love your podcast. And to be able to talk about what was not before you invited me on this show, one of my favorite songs, but now will probably rank in my top five Ooh. of Beatles songs. Ooh. Um, I can't yeah, wait to get into before, that. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for the opportunity, because if you listen to this song, Tell Me Why, you will know all you need to know about John Lennon. All you need to know. Wow. I'm, I am super excited to get into this, because I have a very uh, kind of similar trajectory on this tune. Um, before, we wanna, before we get into it, though, uh, you know, I kind of want to start at the beginning, and I had this really funny recollection uh, the other day when I started prepping for this episode. Um, a band I used to tour in in the late 20, uh, I guess the early aughts, or what, what is that decade of 2000 to 2010? The, the aughts. aughts, yeah. In the aughts. Yeah. Um, it was the late aughts. Yes. <laughs> uh, late aughts. We used to go play Shreveport, um, Monroe, that kind of area often. And I remember being at, I want to say it might have been Rab's. Uh, steakhouse and and venue, whatever it's called, and seeing some kind of poster for like a book release event for one of the early books in your series, and thinking, how is somebody in North Louisiana writing and releasing books about John Lennon? Like that just doesn't equate in my head as like something you would see. So I've got to know like what's the origin story? You know, how does someone from North Louisiana become like a renowned John Lennon and Beatles expert? Well, it, I grew up actually, and this won't make it any better, but I grew up in Alexandria and <laughs> I was in Horseshoe Drive Elementary. I was in the fourth grade. Um, I came to school one day in December and there were three of my friends waiting for me to get off the bus and they just surrounded me and they had what must have been a VJ, um, maybe Swan, I don't know, I think it was VJ record and they held it up to me and said these these are the beagles do you know about them i'm like no and they said well 
I was a very studious, nerdy kid. I was <laughs> the kid that worked in the library before school, volunteered to shelve books, and I was in Nirvana because <laughs> I was shelving books, and you know, I cleaned the erasers, that kid. So I was like, no, I, I don't know him. And they said, well, well, everybody is in love with the Beatles. Everybody. I mean, this is pre-Ed Sullivan. So Ed Sullivan didn't really introduce us to the Beatles. Mm. You know, we, we know about them before they even get here. Now how did they get them? They, how did they find it? I, a friend of mine's father was in the record business and found out about them and got her the record. And then it spread, you know, like wildfire through the school. So, cool. so they said, you've got until recess, which was at like 1030, to fall in love with one of them. Like, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> recess? You know, so I put the little 45 on my desk and I, you know, looked at it. It, I was mainly, I'm sure, paying attention and taking copious notes, as I am <laughs> wont to do. But I did look at it, and at recess, I announced, I'll take that guy. Well, that guy was George Harrison. And they all went, oh. oh. <laughs> they were just crestfallen. I could tell I had really disappointed them. And so I said, look, I can't fall in love with someone in two hours. It, you got to give me more than that. Can I? take the record home overnight and can I listen to it and think about it? And one of them, it was, I think it was Anne Mayu who let me borrow her record. And so I took it home. What I did was what I always do research. So I started calling their older sisters and saying, tell me about these Beatles. And I found out that John had started the band. He was called the chief Beatle or the leader Beatle. And he was really smart and you know, I thought, okay, this is clearly who they think I'm going to fall for. And so I went back the next day and said, okay, I've changed my mind. It's John Lennon. And they're like, yes, we knew it, John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, I, I thought I spent years being a Beatles fan through junior high, through high school, into college. And when I got to college, I knew that I wanted that my what I was here for was to write a book about someone to write it as a novel or a narrative but to do extensive research and tell the story exactly as it was not to deviate not a historical fiction but to tell it with what they actually ate what they wore what they said what they did and I started thinking I got two degrees in three years, a degree in history and a degree in English and went straight into the master's program at University of Maryland. Again, really thinking about writing this book. It was going to be one book. And when I finally got around to starting it, I thought, who do I know a lot about? Oh, John Lennon. I, I know everything there is to know about John Lennon. I knew zippity-doo-dah. I knew <laughs> nothing about John Lennon. And half the stuff that I knew, probably he lied about because, right. you know, they asked him his favorite color and he said black. And who knows if that's even true, you know? <laughs> I mean, he was probably just not in a great mood and wanted to say that. Um, so I started collecting and you really can't see because I've got walls of books all around me, but I would do, you know, 10 books, 20 books, 100 books, 200 books, 300 books, 500 books, CDs, and at that time, audio tapes and um anything magazines periodicals people would send me they would hear i was doing this research and they would send me their collections their scrapbooks they're from the 60s all kinds of things 
And so I, I, for, I did research for like 10 years. And then because of writing the book the way I'm writing it, you can't do it without knowing how the place looked, how it smelled, what you see. When you exit Ye Crack in Tiny Rice Street, what is John seeing when he walks out that door? What's the street made of? What are the sounds that he hears? Um, you know, you have to know your way around Liverpool. Mm -hmm. So I started saving. I remember going to the bank. I was teaching aerobics at the time and I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I mean, you're not really, you know, knocking the door down. And I was also an adjunct professor at Troy State University. And again, I think my husband figured up one time I was making like a dollar 30 an hour because, you know, hours of preparation and then, you know, teaching the class. So mm -hmm. I wasn't making a lot, but I remember depositing a dollar and 25 cents at one point because anytime I got money, it went toward the trip to Liverpool. And finally, in 1993, we actually went to Liverpool the first time. And then we went every year after that for seven years. I would do an interview in the morning, an interview in the afternoon, and an interview at night. And the ones at night in Liverpool are something to behold. <laughs> <laughs> because people start drinking literally right. at the minute the pubs open. And they're fine. They, Rand and I would leave, say, the grapes in Matthew Street go back to the hotel, change clothes, and we come back and they're still at the same table. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Alan Williams and a lot of the guys that work the cavern tours, like Eddie Porter, who knew everybody, and Ray Johnson and all that group that really knew the Beatles. And I got to talk to Rod Murray, who roomed with John at Gambier Terrace, and Helen Anderson, who was his best friend there, and June Furlong, the lady he idolized. She was a life model at his art college all the people that no one talks to mm -hmm. who knew him as a person and can give me details. Then once I would write a chapter, I would send it to the people in Liverpool and Bill Harry, for example, said, you know, no Jude, no, 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 no. You, you've got, got it wrong. You have me in the front room at you crack. You need to move me to the back room, put me under the painting of Lord Nelson and you had me drinking ale. I only drank bitters. <laughs> so, you know, it was, this was a long, a lifelong process. It started that day in Horseshoe Drive Elementary, and I am probably 30 before I really start putting pen to paper and start writing with all of this interview material from primary sources as well. And mm -hmm. I still do that today. If I write a chapter, I may have 70 sources who are all listed at the end of every chapter. Wow. But I also talk to the people who are still with us who are primary sources because many of them, for example, I don't know if you've had the great Ivor Davis on your show. Mm, have you no. had Ivor yet? We and haven't, no. He is uh, oh, amazing, amazing. He was the only journalist who was with the Beatles from day one to day end of the 1964 North American tour. He's again with them in 65 and they choose two people to go in with them to meet Elvis. He's one of the two. So, Oh, wow. His, he is huge. Not to, I'll tell you off camera, all the other stuff he's done, but he, oh, yes. he is amazing. So, um, yeah, I interviewed him for the last book, Art Schreiber, who is 93 and he's going on 13. His brain is so <laughs> sharp. Um, he was with them on the tour. I always try to talk to people who were there and dig into the weeds, really, you know, 
why does John wear the same shirt five days in a row? I mean, why does he do that? Can you explain that to me? Because he does. And they'll, they would explain it. And what kind of things did John talk about on the bus or on the plane or what, you know, Art Schreiber said, John called me at two in the morning and say, I can't sleep. Can you come and play Monopoly with me? And he'd be like, no, John, no, <laughs> I have to write. No, I can't. I've got to be fresh. I have to write for the newspaper. That's why I'm here. Well, I don't care. I need you. And so he would go and play Monopoly with him. <laughs> All of those things. It's been a, it's been a lifelong process. Mm-hmm. I've got to know why he didn't, why he wore the same shirt for five days. Was he getting it laundered? Mimi had taught him that a shirt is not dirty until you have worn it Monday through Friday. And and post-World War II, you didn't waste anything. Mm -hmm. When he was a tiny boy, they would leave the landing light on for him because they had blackout curtains, so it couldn't be seen. And they would leave a little nightlight on for him. And he would yell down to Uncle George, as he called his Uncle George, don't waste the light, turn it off. So John was very frugal. He would wear, you you look at pictures like in the anthology or in Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles Chronicle. And you're like, my gosh, he wore that yesterday. And now he's got it on again. What is going on? But he said, you know, I've learned nothing is really dirty until you've worn it at least five days. So that's that's what what shirt was it? I'm curious if it's one that I would. He had one that was the. It was had color cubicles like black, white. You remember those shirts of the '60s? They had. Mm-hmm. He wore that one all the time. He had one that was a faux um, turtleneck, and it had it was dark blue, navy blue, and it had embroidery that went around the neck. He's wearing it in help when in he help. jumps into the little tube that comes up, the water that comes up in the pool, and all mm-hmm. that. And interestingly enough, because you don't think of John and Ringo as being the same size, I mean it. I don't anyway, but they wear each other's clothes all the time. I noticed that before, especially like in 67 when they're wearing like very like recognizable, you know, jackets and shirts. And you're like, you're thinking, how is Ringo wearing the same coat that John wore to the Sergeant Pepper release party? Or it's like, how are they fitting in the same clothing? They seem like such different sized humans. That's really interesting. Well, you know, John had that black shirt with the white polka dots that he wore a lot. It's Mm -hmm. late 64, 65. Ringo wears it too. That <laughs> that faux turtleneck blue shirt. Ringo wears it too. I mean, come on, you're multi multi millionaires, <laughs> and you not just get your own clothes, but they they were. I mean, John bought a car, kept it overnight, decided it was a it was frivolous, and that isn't the way to live, and returned it the next day. Just. When you grew up in World War II, and I had World War II parents, mm-hmm. and my parents, my mom and dad were almost 40 by the time they had me. So they had been through the Depression, the Great Depression. You saved everything. You saved what they call tinfoil. You saved twist ties. And that was John. John was the same way. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. It's like my father. Yeah, my that father is very is that much way. like your father. Like yeah. he, they, my father's family grew up, they were very poor, and he, just like he doesn't throw things away like he will he will rinse a ziploc bag and put it on something (laughs) so it stays open to dry and reuse it yep (laughs) i know it's just crazy what my father would say to my husband um can you fix whatever it was like a like a tape player an old cassette my husband would say no just 
go get a new update. No, I don't want a new one. I want this one. Like it's going to cost me more to try to get parts and repair this. No, no, you're not going to throw anything away. So Mm -hmm. that was. But I think also like products are made differently now. Like our, I think our society has become more disposable. Like our, like our, our, appliances aren't made to last more than 10 years whereas like if you have an appliance from like the 60s in your house and it still works it's probably going to work forever Mm -hmm. like they just lasted forever and now i mean we put appliances in our house after in 2006 after hurricane katrina and we've already had to replace them like (laughs) well and it's planned that way Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, th- I think even Paul has spoken to this same point recently about how he throws nothing away. Like if you ever see interviews of him uh, at his studio facility on his on his property and uh, it's in like a windmill of some sort, I think. Um, but he's got like his old desk from like his like elementary school. Like Aww. he's kept all these things. He's got all these old uh He's got the same like Brunel tape machine that he had in the 60s that he made tape loops on things that you can do it on this laptop now that probably costs less to buy a new laptop than to replace parts on this tape machine. But he keeps those and he uses them to build things that he then uses on McCartney three. Like mm-hmm. yeah. it's the same thing. He keeps all that stuff. That's really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. How wild. It's a mindset. And a lot of the people, and I wrote the, the John Lennon series really with those girls who were at the airport in mind, because I thought they're going to want to read this in a narrative format, but they're going to want to know exactly what happened. I have almost no women readers, almost none. Um, 7% are are females. So 93% of my readers are male. And many of them grew up in that same era. And so they want physical books. And when I say to them, listen, the ebook is a much better buy. Number one, it's only $9.99 as opposed to $25. Number two, if you touch the link at the end of the chapter, say we've been doing the New York press conference Mm -hmm. and you finish reading about it and you touch the link, up pops the press conference and you watch it. And then you press it again (laughs) and it disappears. If you've been at a Beatles concert, let's say in Paris in June of 1965, you read it, you tap the link and there's the concert. You know, wow, so yeah. why would, why wouldn't you want to read the ebook if you don't know something in a chapter and it's footnoted? You tap the note, all the information telling you about it pops up, but they say no, no, I want a physical book. So and I only I only do a thousand physical books, and when they're gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. So they're consequently, as you know, on the secondary market, people are just yeah, they go green. sky high, yeah. yeah. So they're yeah. $904,000. It's nuts. And, <laughs> and I get none of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. It's just, oh but that's God. the mindset of give me, I want to hold the book. I want to turn the pages. And mm-hmm. I heard Ken Womack last night. Y'all, were, I listened to the show you did with him. And he said, if it's not on my iPhone, I don't want anything to do with it. That's the new mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how those of us who've stayed up with technology are. But not everybody's that way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm kind of, you know, it's funny. I am very much that way with music. I like to own a physical product and I like to hold a record and read the liner notes and do the thing with it. Um, with books, I, I like, and I'm on, since I'm on a device or a computer all day for everything else I do, 
a book is a chance to kind of unplug from that for me. So I still enjoy books in that sense. And I do find I have a harder time just reading just text on a screen. But yeah. what you're saying about having like essentially an immersive experience with it, with yeah. links built in and video built in, that's so much more interesting. That is something I think is like, that's the way to go with that. So yeah. I commend you on being on the forefront of that. That's really cool. Well, you could do also, you could keep your phone beside you because in the new book, Ruth McCartney helped me, um, she and my husband worked together on getting QR codes mm -hmm. for the book. So now all you have to do is just hold your just, phone up to that oh, QR nice. code. And right there, you can watch the concert. And then, you know, so I'm trying to edge the people who are physical book only mm -hmm. into incorporating the technology with it. And, you know, and I used to put all of the end notes at the back of the book, but I found that they weren't going to take the trouble to look. And there's so much extra information that this time I've moved them to the end of every chapter because <clears throat> why miss out on something? You yeah. know, why miss out on why did John close himself in a broom closet to record this song? What's the reason? Well, mm -hmm. if I can't work that into the story, there it is in the end notes. So, you know, that's awesome. It's, and we're, we're moving that in that direction. Yeah, sure. Wow, that's great. Uh, so you're like 34. How many years into the research now would you say? I, mean, I, know you, I know you say you started, obviously, when you were a child. But like when did, you made your first trip to, to Liverpool in 93. So all yeah. these years into it, what yeah. keeps you what keeps you coming back to the story? What keeps you enthralled in John's life? Aside from just like, you're in the middle and you can't stop now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, there's some things you guys faced the pandemic and you thought the thing that will keep us excited and moving forward and not depressed about this pandemic is we're going to do a podcast and you've done what? 60 some odd podcast. Yeah. Yeah. 60. I mean, this is 61. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot. So that is, you know, that was the thing that motivated me to get up every morning. That's what I feel like I came to do. But why John? Well, it isn't just because of those girls, you know, <laughs> at school. Uh, I, and it's not because John is a great singer songwriter. He is. He, George Martin said he had the finest voice in rock and roll. And he does. It's raw and raspy and guttural and expressive. And you can hear his anger and you can hear his pain, all of that. He's also a, an amazing artist. Um, single line drawing, still touring the country. That's not the reason. He was a great writer. His, you know, the first book won the Foyles Literary Award for the finest work in the English language in 1964. That's saying a lot. I mean, he was a, a, a brilliant author of two and then later skywriting by word of mouth three books and that's not the reason um not that he was a peace activist which certainly he would have fit into our world today he would have been extremely relevant and when you go back and listen to sometime in new york city oh my mm -hmm. gosh it's the most relevant lp of all I've you been know. thinking about that recently, how of the moment that record seems like very, very current. It's today. It yeah. is everything that we, he was so far ahead of his time that they panned him and said, this is too political and he's got a political agenda. Hello. That's, you know, we finally caught up to John Lennon, but that's not the reason. The reason is the story of tell me why. And it is one of the worst 
stories that I've ever heard anyone face. And in light of that tragedy, he never gave up. I mean, everything almost that John touched turned sour. It, you know, do, do you want me to talk a little bit about that now or should we save it as we get closer to talking about the book or? We can hop into, we can <laughs> hop into that and, and, and go into the song if you want to switch to that. That's totally fine. We could totally okay. do that. Well, because it is the reason that I write these books, you know, in answer to your question, it's the reason. But um, so John is four and a half and he, his mother got married on a dare. You know, Fred Lennon said to her, I dare you to marry me. And she did. And they've been dating for several years, you know, but she dated other people. But never did she suspect that two things were going to happen. Number one, World War II was going to break out and he was going to be gone on transport ships that were taking the soldiers back from New York to the war front and so forth. He was gone for a long time. And sometimes she didn't have any communication with him at all. And she's good looking and sexy and she likes men and men like her. So not only is he gone, but after he's been gone like two months, she finds out she's pregnant. And she did, it was something she didn't expect and she didn't want. So in October, she has the baby, John. And after a certain amount of time, she goes back to playing her banjo in the pubs around Liverpool, like um, the uh, Brookhouse pub on Smithdown and all these places that she went to and played. She starts dating. She writes Fred and says, I want a divorce. I only married you on a dare. I don't really want to be married. I'm young and I have my life ahead of me. And he writes back and says, no, you're just talking crazy. I'm going to come home. It's going to be fine. We're going to be happy. I love you. No. Well, we're talking, you know, the 19, early 1950s, you know, late 1940s, people didn't get divorced. It was a very hush, hush thing. So, she just keeps dating in spite of the fact that he, you know, won't give her a divorce. And when he finally does return to Liverpool, John is four and a half years old. He finds that John, who felt like a third wheel in his mother's life, because she's fallen in love with a guy named John Dykins, and they're they're close. That in Liverpool they would say they're as close as this. It's all one word. As close as this. <laughs> so they they're they're as close as this, and John feels left out. So he started getting on the bus with the green leather seats because he knows that bus will take him to his aunt and uncle's house. Sometimes he stays there two weeks and his mother doesn't come get him. And Fred finds John living with Mimi and George Smith, John's aunt and uncle. And so without asking anyone's permission, it's after all his little boy, he takes him away and he makes plans to take John to New Zealand where they're going to be father and son forever. But on the eve of their departure, and I know I, I'm 100% sure who did this, um, Fred's brother, Sidney, could not stand Fred Lennon. He thought Fred a ne'er-do-well, and Fred was kind of a, a, a bit of a ne'er-do-well. Anyway, he had the wind at his back, let's say that. Mm -hmm. So he reported to Julia and said, he's taking your son away and they're going to New Zealand and you're never going to see him again. So you need to get over there and gave the location. So she shows up. Now, Mark Lewison in Tune In talked with Billy Hall, a guy that was in the kitchen when all this took place and could not hear what was going on 
But Mark said, Jude, I swear to you, Billy Hall was telling the truth. And I believe that Billy Hall was telling the truth as he knew it. Because when what I'm getting ready to tell you is over, Fred probably came into the kitchen and said, because you're, you know, as a man, you have, you know, pride. You don't want to say, I've been bested. I'm a fool. I've been tricked. I've been duped. He said, Julie and I reached an amicable agreement. Well, it wasn't an amicable agreement. They, according to John, and this is a story John always told, they put him in between the two of them and they made him choose. Who do you want, your mother or your father? And at first, first he, of course, chooses his dad. His dad is going to take him to live forever. He wants him. He's taken him to wade in the ocean and they've gone to the boardwalk and he taught him to whistle between his teeth. And it's a happy relationship. But when he sees his mother start crying and this becomes the song much later on, he runs after her screaming, mommy, don't go. And you can just see her picking him up just like the trophy that he is to her and smiling at Fred and putting him on the first train back to Liverpool. Mm. The story, well, we didn't know for years that there was another story behind that. And I'll, I'll tell you that later, but there's another completely different story. And had that story been known, we probably wouldn't have had the Beatles. They probably never would exist it, but we don't know that other story yet. So we're just going to push it off to the side. Mm -hmm. They get back to Liverpool, they get a taxi, they go straight to Mimi's house. And John is like, oh no, oh no. His mother says, run out in the backyard and play with your little dog, Sally. And John looks straight at her and says, you're not going to leave me, are you? And she says, no, Mm -hmm. I'll be here. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. I gave her everything I had, but she left me sitting on my own. Did you have to treat me oh so bad? All I do is hang my head and moan. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. She leaves him and she doesn't see him for a long time. Partly, I'm sure, to protect her emotions. And, you know, she's sad. She's, She's lost her child. Um, But we don't know that part of the story for a long time. We think she's just left him. You know, when I wrote the first volume should have been there, I'm, you know, really kind of angry with her because I think she's dumped him. Um, And now we know the rest of the story and it changes things. But John never knew the rest of the story. Um, So she goes on to have two children, Jackie and Julia, Julia Baird. And John finds this out and he's like, okay, it's not children she doesn't want. It's me. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want me because she's kept the other children. She just doesn't want me. So, you know, you have the promise of, is there anything I, I can do? Because I really can't stand it. I'm so in love with you. you know, I'll be good. Is, is it something I said or done? Tell me what. I'll apologize. But if you don't, I really can't go on. Pulling back the tears in my eyes. He's devastated. And so as John grows up without her, he, everything he does, and he tells you on the White Album, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. Everything he does is to get her attention, 
to make her proud of him, to let her know that he, she should have been there for him, that she should have loved him. So age 14 and a half, second big blow in his life, he sent away to Scotland on holiday. He loved going there. He stayed with his aunt, played with his cousins. He had a great time, but he comes home. And the only person who has ever been kind to him, who has read him stories at night, who leaves a barley sweet under his pillow at night, who takes him to the picture drones, the Disney films and movies that come to Liverpool, even though Mimi says he can't go, that it's waste, it's a waste of time. His uncle George has died of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. And he hadn't been there. He didn't get to tell him goodbye. He, there's no closure. So he starts laughing and he can't stop. And it goes on for hours. And finally that night, Mimi, in desperation, calls Julia and says, you got to come over here. I think he's lost his mind. And so um, Julia immediately is there. She knocks on his door. She comes in, sits on the bed and says to him, I'm coming back into your life, but not as your mother. You've got a mother. I want to be George. I'm going to be your new best friend. And for the next couple of years, they are inseparable. They are inseparable. That he skips school, he hangs out at her house. She teaches him to play banjo, and then later guitar in a banjo esque fashion. Mm-hmm. They eat ginger cakes and they drink uh, root beer, and they she teaches him to dance, and they listen to rock and roll. He falls in love with rock and roll, and then she divulges to him, "I have a secret to tell you, John." You have music in your bones. You are destined to become famous. You're going to be the greatest singer the world has ever known. And she urges him to start a band, which he does with his mate, Pete Schott. And he starts bringing in boys from Wilton to form this band, the Quarrymen. They practice at her house. She's essentially their first drummer because she gets pot lids and bangs them <laughs> and wears a, a big silly hat. And they, you know, And right at the point where they are just, he's so happy. They recorded their first record of 45 and they're starting to get noticed around town. They've played the Wilton Garden Fed. He's met Paul. Paul's part of the band. Paul is wanting John to bring George Harrison in, this quiet, shy guy with the pink shirts. Mimi thinks he's a radical because he wears pink shirts. All of this is happening. (laughs) And she's hit by a drunk driver and essentially what happened to my husband a week ago. Um, She's thrown through the air. She lands on the dual carriageway of Men Love Avenue and she's dead before she reaches the hospital. And so now John's lost her a second time, but this time it's permanent. And he locks himself in his room, if I can tell the story, and um, won't come out. And Mimi leaves food outside the door. He doesn't eat most of it. He eats some, but he doesn't eat very much. And three weeks later, when he emerges, he's the John Lennon we know. He is, I heard you saying that, I think it was your mother told you don't like John Lennon because Mm. he was mean and nasty. He is very acerbic. He's got a shell around him because he doesn't ever want to be hurt by being in love with anyone again, because they're only going to be taken from him. And he will jab at you before you can jab at him. When I was at Corey Bank, grammar his high school i talked to the guy that was the head boy uh the prefect and he said well i'll tell you one thing john lennon was a salt 
and I don't mean salt of the earth. I mean salt in an open wound because he wants to get you before you can get him. He's not going to open up. He's not going to be your friend. Um, And that's how it all starts. So he had every reason to be mad or sad because he just lost the only girl he had. If he could get his way, he'd get himself locked up, but he can't. So he cries instead. The two songs, Tell Me Why and Cry Instead, are both on a hard day's night. They're back-to-back on the Capitol side right. one. They're, they're oh, bookend man. songs. And it is the same story in different words. You know, I can't, when people shout and stare, I'm shy. I'm going to hide myself away, which he does. He totally hides himself. You don't know, John. But I'll come back. And when I do, I'm going to break hearts all around the world because you should have loved me. You should have been there. And that's the story he tells in this song uh, over and over and over through his career. And I'm a loser in Nowhere Man, in Girl. In fact, in Girl, he does, he grabs you by the arm and says, is there anybody going to listen to my story all about the girl who came to stay? She's the kind of girl you want so much. It makes you sorry, but you don't regret a single day. He's singing the same song over and over again. And this song, Tell Me Why, is one of the first times that we hear um, he sings it not not a second time which precedes the song but he's telling you his life story this is who i am mm-hmm. and i'm angry i'm resentful but i need someone to love me i need her half of what i say is meaningless but i say it just to reach her so that is that's why i tell the story because all of us have trouble all of us have things that go wrong all of us have tragedy but just remember that John Lennon probably had more than anyone because he goes on to lose Stu after this. I mean, mm-hmm. he loves again. And when he loves again, death takes that person again. Right. So he never lets it defeat him. And that's the story I want people to see because it doesn't get any better. As he goes through his life, my, my father-in-law said, where are the happy chapters? As he goes through <laughs> his life, mm-hmm. he's going to continue to be tortured and disappointed um, and have this hole in his heart, but he doesn't give up. So that's mm. a long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I guess like Brian too, like yeah, yeah. another person that like yeah. he connects yeah. with. I mean, I don't know. Brian's probably very much like an Uncle George fatherly type figure, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Yeah. And then he, loses so he loves head. Brian mm-hmm. and they're super close, Julia, but he after he comes back from that first 14 day trip to the Spanish Riviera with Brian, everybody calls it Barcelona. And they went all over the Spanish Riviera. It was a big adventure. It wasn't just Barcelona, and it wasn't even Barcelona where the uh, uh, incident that everybody at, talks about that, like it's the only thing that happened on that trip, happened. But he, they, John connects with Brian's um, gay life in an era when you could be arrested for being gay. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a law, it was against the law. And he is Brian's friend and he understands him. And he says, tell me, tell me about this. Let me know your world and what your world is like. And they're very close, but when he comes home, everybody teases him for months. They won't let up on him. It starts in May when John gets back and by Paul's 21st birthday at the end of June, Bob Wooler smarts off to him about the Spanish honeymoon. And I said to Bob, 
Bob, tell me what exactly you said. And he said, oh, no, I, I, am <laughs> ne- <laughs> I am taking that to the grave. I am never repeating again what I said. Oh, God. But, you know, whatever he said, it had something to do with the Spanish honeymoon. I know that much. And John beats him up. He's had it. So mm-hmm. after that, he hides the fact that he and Brian go away together quite a bit. And they are very close friends. And Julia, like you just said, he loses him too. You know, it, it is just, it's why everybody thinks that Yoko foisted herself on John by being in the studio, that she was the one that wanted to be there and she wedged her way into the Beatles. It's really not that. What happened was they have this big fight the first couple of months that they're living together. And he says to her, look, you need to wait on me. Or he said, you need to serve me. All women in my life serve me. My aunt Mimi, Cynthia, my aunts and, you know, all of my aunts, I'm the only boy in the family and you need to serve me. And she said, well, if that's the case, then I can't be here because if everything is about you, there's no room for me to breathe and I'm leaving. It wasn't like she was, you know, she wasn't mad. She was just saying, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm out of here. And so that's he not going to starts... work for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. No, thank you. So he starts taking her with him everywhere he goes because he's afraid if he leaves her even to go to the bathroom, she's going to leave. And she, he can't afford to be abandoned again. He's already been abandoned once. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? Promise it. You know, he used to ask Cynthia, are you going to leave me? Are you going to leave me? And so, you know, he just, it is, it's a story that goes on and on and on and on through his life. Same story, same song, same lyrics. Yeah, man. Fascinating. I feel like you've already blown my mind on this song and we haven't even like officially gone into the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This is great. Well, let's go ahead. Let's hop into it because now I want to really dive into it because now I'm just like fascinated by this because I you've already jumped to the middle of the onion of the layers of this song. And I've, I my mind is just blown. <laughs> so, friends, let's do it. This week at number 156 is Tell Me Why. came to America for the first time, they were booked for an 18-show run in Paris. It was there that they began working on songs for their upcoming film, uh, which was already slated to begin filming in just a few months. A slew of now-classic songs were written on a piano they had delivered to their hotel. Songs like Can't Buy Me Love, If I Fell, and I Love Her, You Can't Do That, and I'll Be Back. 
So as while they were on their trip to the States, they knocked out another batch of more up-tempo songs, including I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, I Should Have Known Better, and this week's song, Tell Me Why. Uh, written entirely by John, this track harkens back to their love of girl, group song, of girl groups like the Shirelles, the Cookies, Martha and the Vandellas, uh, with its three-part harmonies and kind of that groove and bounce throughout the song. So on February 27th, now as world-conquering heroes back from America, they set up in Abbey Road for a session that would see them record this song, along with And I Love Her and If I Fell on the same day. It took eight tracks to get the song done, all done with three with live three-part vocals. Uh, the song was featured, of course, in the film A Hard Day's Night during the band's live performance section at the end of the film, notably to an audience of teen extras, including a young Phil Collins. Ooh. Phil was in the house, if you didn't know that. Um, it was released on the UK Parlophone album A Hard Day's Night, and in the U.S. came out on the official United Artists soundtrack of the film, which, of course, was half songs from the film and half the score from the film, and additionally on the U.S. Capitol album Something New, all released that summer, June and July of 1964. Interestingly enough, the band never performed it live, either in concert or the BBC, only having mimed it live in the film. So, it's pretty funny that they put a recycled album on an album called Something New. Right. Just like sidebar. <laughs> Tracks that are already available, something new. So why do I have Tell Me Why at 156? All right. So full disclosure, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I'm going to start this race by telling you my engine's, my engine's already shot. I really think I blew it on putting this at 156. I'll tell you why. So John used to kind of slag this song off as one he just kind of tossed off for the film. He does that a lot throughout his life to a number of songs. And I used to feel like this song was just okay. It was cool. It works for the film. It's pleasant enough. Nothing major to write home about. Now, my Beatles cover band, The Walrus, here in New Orleans, uh, recently added this to our repertoire about three months ago. Uh, before then, it was for some reason a song I'd never played. I never sang it, never tried to learn it prior to that. But holy hell, this song is an absolute blast. Uh, it's so much fun. I think it may be one of the most fun and joyous things in the band's entire catalog. Um, even with lyrics that are pretty downtrodden and sad and coming from that kind of spurned, jealous lover perspective, uh, it hits this melodic area for me that just checks every box of, of, of a Beatles song or any song for that, for that matter, for things that just make me smile. It's got all the trademarks of an early great Beatles song. It's got a fantastic drum part by Ringo, drum fills that become just kind of their own little hooks themselves, a brilliant bass line from Paul, an absolutely scorching lead vocal from John, three-part harmonies, and the brilliance is that they're rooted in doo-wop and R&B, but there's the, also an added sophistication of jazz in there as well, and they sound super effortless, but they're definitely more intricate than you might realize at first. Uh, you know, I think as we go through the show and I research deeper into these songs, uh, and occasionally we get new perspectives on them from the remaining Beatles. It opens them up a bit more. You know, Paul's on record just a couple of years ago about this song in particular, saying he thought that John was writing these songs in a bit more autobiographical way. Now, he says whether it might have been about a fight he and Cynthia had or him and another woman, which, as you've alluded to, another woman, all of a sudden, psh, I didn't think it was his mother, but holy <laughs> crap, that makes all the sense. Uh, and John was admittedly, you know, very jealous, very insecure. So here he's putting all of his own fears into the song, literally begging someone not to leave him. Uh, and he's doing that, that amazing thing that only the best pop writers can do, where they put this dark, sad lyric behind an absolute earworm, up-tempo, wonderful song. So it's one of those songs where I think it's just kind of the blueprint of all the things I love about the Beatles, especially that early 64 Beatles. 
Now, it may be that they'd already started growing so quickly by this time that if this song is maybe the pinnacle or the best kind of amalgamation of all the things that I love about the Beatles, maybe in my ranking it got pushed aside a bit just purely based in being compared to that growth. So I kind of think with that in mind, I think I got it wrong. I think 156 is way too low. I think in hindsight, I'm at least 50 spots too low. This should be a top 100 song. Um, I think I blew it. I screwed the pooch on this. I take full blame. <laughs> uh, where it actually should go, I don't know, but I think it's definitely top 100 for me now. It's in the hundreds. I don't know where, but it's somewhere in the top 100. Mm. So that's my two cents on it. Uh, Jude, what do you think about it musically? Aside from the weight of the context of it, what do you love about this song? I know it's moved into top well, five for you, you were saying. I think you can pat yourself on the back, first of all, for you know saying look, I, I'm going to reevaluate here, which is what I do constantly in these books because you get new information and the whole story changes. But in the 100 Best Beatles Songs by Martin and Spignessi, they don't rate it in the top 100. And Rolling Stone and their evaluation of the top 100 songs includes <clears throat> George's Long, 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 but they don't include Tell Me Why. I'm like, you could have had a V8. Um, it is... <laughs> Just, you know, it's a song that is camouflaged in, as you said, that happy, zippy, and bursting with love tune. So people may miss what he's saying. And then if, if they listen to the LP and he sings, I'll cry instead, and they miss it again, then John was doing a good job of cam camouflaging his feelings. But he sings that same song so many times. And I don't think we ever got it until the White Album. But you fast forward to 1965 with help. And on the 14th of April, he comes into the studio early and sits down with George Martin and says, I've written that song that you wanted for the film and I want to play it for you. And you can hear this version of it on the anthology. But it is this very sad, heart-wrenching ballad about when I was younger, so much younger than today, I, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now those days are gone. I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind. I've opened up the door. And he has opened up the door. He's telling us in these songs, here I am, see me. But don't hear me because I'm going to put the, the music behind it that is so upbeat. You get distracted by that fantastic walking bass. I mean, the line is so strong. And, you, and that falsetto that Paul and George do on Is There Anything I Can Do? Mm -hmm. It's so early Beatlesque. It's so wag your head um, woo kind of song that you miss the pain that is in this. Um, Tim Riley says that it begins with a tumble of drums. I love that. That's a, a great description. Drums. It's the same yeah. thing. Uh, someone described the, it, it's kind of the same drum fill that starts uh, She Loves You, where someone described yes. it as, it sounds like Ringo's falling down the stairs. Does, yes. That, that, it, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. You just fall into the song. And then it grabs you and drags you with this call and answer device that he has going. He's singing a line and Paul and George sing a line and he sings a line. It's the give and go. And it's it's a, a brilliantly camouflaged song, but you nailed it when you said that when John says... It's just a song. It's, I threw it together. It, this song is no good. This song is crap. When he, when John Lennon says that, you need to pay attention to that song. Yeah. Because in that song, he's told you who he is. He hated It's Only Love because it was a whole true confession about what was happening to Cynthia and to him. You know, 
I love you, but I can't get along with you. We fight every night. And it, you know, he, the, the mythology that we've all grown up with is that he never loved Cynthia. That's not true. He dated her for several years before they even got married. He, according to Larry Kane and Art Schreiber and Ivor Davis, who were all on the 64 tour, called her every single night. In January of 64, you just alluded to the fact that they were in Paris. They're given one day off. George, Ringo, Paul go sightseeing and enjoy Paris. John gets on a plane and flies home to London to be with his wife for one night. Mm. He loves her very much. But by, by 65, they're starting to fight. And why do I do this? It's only love and that is all. So anytime he tells you, don't listen to this song, this song is no good. Listen to that song. (laughs) Antennas could go up on that one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And this is a, you know, what if you have to write a song quickly, I tell you guys, okay, tomorrow night at this time, we're going to meet and I want you to have written a song. What are you going to write about? You're going to write about what you know. You're not going to write about things you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't have time for that. And so he's writing about what he knows the best, his story. Yeah. Especially for something that even Paul has said, that's a hundred percent John. Like that's John's song. Like that makes it even more uh, obvious. You know, he's probably putting some real truth on that. Yeah. And I think that it was either, I'm pretty sure that was Tim Riley. Yes. Who said another tormented John Lennon song. Well, yeah, because John Lennon is tormented. What do you want him to write about? You know, it, it, he's sad and he, he's finding catharsis in singing about it. Once he tells you his tragedy, he feels better for a little while and then it comes back and then he tells it to you again. You know, don't wear red because that was the color my baby wore. That was Julia's signature color. Mm. He didn't want Cynthia or anybody because when I see it, I can't, if, if I could forget her, it would be great, but I can't forget her. And you've got to realize this boy did not grow up with this woman. He starts having connection with her at 14 and a half. And she is exciting and she plays music in pubs and she's funny and she's fun and she's beautiful. And he has a major crush on her. And, you know, he, at one point, and this is in one of his bootlegs, he talks about the fact that he got up the nerve to kiss her and thought, should I move forward with this or should I not? He, he loves her. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it is a love that's a combination of longing for a mother that you never had and a crush, a love for this beautiful woman. And so what does he do? He ends up finding her in, in what he says, ocean child. And Julia calls her ocean child, which is the word Yoko. Yoko in Japanese, mm-hmm. a woman who is older than he is, whom he calls mother, who gives him an allowance. This it's a whole psychological story. And he really is like a psychologist dream come true for a case <laughs> yeah. study, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Yeah. Like, he can't, he, he can't get over it. He just can't get over it. Yeah. So, Like the number of times we've gone into topics on this show. And I found myself thinking like, if these four guys could have had like really good therapy in real time, like how different history might've played out. You know? mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. My and God. with the story that I alluded to that we, that we didn't discuss is that just a couple of years ago, um, aunt modder, uh, John's aunt modder who is in Scotland 
um, calls Julia Baird and says, I want you to come up here. I have something to tell you. I'm dying and I need to talk to you. Julia was the only one that was ever really close to her. And so she goes up there and the aunt says, I want you to know that your mother did not give John up willingly. Mimi had already called social services on Julia several times because John didn't really have a bed. He would sleep with his mom as a little boy. She didn't have money. She didn't have a place for him to sleep. She thought the house was in disarray. It probably was. Julia was an artistic, creative person. She probably wasn't a neat freak. <laughs> and so social services told her she had cleaned up her act. She could not go out to pubs anymore at night to play her banjo and leave the boy unattended because he would cry and the neighbors could hear him. You can't do that. You have to have a babysitter. You have to have someone to leave him with when you go out to play in the pubs. Well, Pop Stanley, the father of Mimi and Julia and Mater, all, you know, he rules the roost. And he says, enough of this. You're living in sin with this guy, John Dykins. You're not going to raise the boy in that situation. <clears throat> Mimi has a stable home. She has a good house. They have a room for John. He'll have his own bed. She'll make sure he goes to school and does his homework. You're giving John away to Mimi. And she doesn't want to, but they bring real pressure on her. If you don't, we're going to call social services. And so she finally does relinquish John. Had John known that, that she loved him, that she wanted him, that she cried for him. She used to put on this song, My Boy John, and sit and cry. And mm -hmm. Julia Baird said, I didn't really understand what was going on until I got to know John better. It, had we known that he was loved and wanted, everything would have been different. He wouldn't need to get to the toppermost or the poppermost. He wouldn't need to sing his pain. We might not have had the Beatles. Yeah. Mm. He wouldn't have brought them together. It would have changed the world. So, right. Mm. Yeah. My goodness. Ooh. Julia, my dear. Who? <laughs> Sorry. What do you think about this? <laughs> Sorry <though>? for my <laughs> name. <laughs> yes. <Ooh>. Jules. We'll <laughs> call you Jules a, today. That was a. <laughs> what um, are you thinking about it? Ooh. I don't know. I mean, you guys are making me think about it because, like, you know, I feel like this song is good where it is. Like, I find the music to be really fun. I really like the harmonies, but just sort of the the lyrics and the way it's sung, I don't love it. Mm -hmm. But now I kind of understand it a little bit better, I think. So, and it's not him being like, oh, the whiny boy about some girl. It's like, it's about his mom and like just this absolutely devastating relationship or lack thereof yeah. that they had. And I don't know. Mm, it seems less annoying now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, he just would not, he did not want to come out and tell his story to music that would really reveal him. Right. I mean, even I'm a loser is pretty upbeat. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't want to spoil the party where the party, you know, being life, I, I'm going to spoil things if I stay here. So I'm just going to go and I'm going to hide. And, you know, if she turns up, let me know. But she ain't going to turn up. She never does. Um, so many times Julia and Yoko does the same thing in later years. We tell John she was coming over to help him with a costume for a school play. She wouldn't show up. She was going to come over and take him to something and she wouldn't show up. And and, and at the end of his life, you know, Yoko says many times she's coming to the Bahamas to be with him. She doesn't come. It's this repeated pattern. And he 
he disguises it pretty well by being the funny guy and mm -hmm. doing the little tap dance and, uh, you know, smarting off. And he, oh, John can always be funny. You look at him at Shea Stadium. Who's the clown on the stage? It's John. But behind every cloud, clown, there is the tears of the clown. And yeah. this is, this song is the tears of the clown. I just, it, it it's really hard to listen to, but it has the same themes that you'll hear in all of his songs. The apology, I promise to be a good boy. I don't trust the mistrust of other people, trust no one, you know, because they're going to hurt you. Um, insecurity, you hear that in If I Fell, um, you hear it in Don't Let Me Down. All the things that you're going to hear throughout the other songs are introduced in this song. So it's kind of, and the thing that irks me is that people say John became autobiographical after he met Bob Dylan. He writes it six months before he meets Bob Dylan. It, it's recorded February 27th of 64. He doesn't even meet Dylan until the 28th of August, 64. It, he was doing this forever. Yeah. He was, you know, he was writing these songs, not a second time. Uh, I'll Cry Instead or All Pre-Dylan. He was always autobiographical. That's why he wrote music. So yeah. that... I'm sure Dylan put the rubber stamp of approval on his tendency to write songs about his feelings. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, Dylan's doing it too. Listen to free wheeling. He's doing what I'm doing, but it wasn't Bob's idea. And it probably gave him the courage to not put them behind a, a boppy catchy song, make it as, yeah. as intimate and stripped down as you want and present, you know, the lyric and the vocal as the focal point of what you're trying to put across. That probably gave him, a lot more of that, um, that give more of a green light for that. I would bet. Yes, yes, you can sing in my life, and you can sing in my life. I love you more, and even girl, um, mm -hmm. which I think people still miss the fact that girl. They th oh well, it's about John. Of course, never would admit it was about Julia because he doesn't get that courage until he gets to the White Album when he says it's all about her. It's all about her, but he doesn't tell you that. He says, oh, well, it, I was really singing about Christianity, which I was having a hard time with at that time. <laughs> really, she's the kind of girl who puts you down when friends are there. You feel a fool. And I can just see Julia. Julia was a big smart aleck. I can see her making some offhand comment, everybody twittering. And, you know, she doesn't realize that he lives or dies on what she says and does. Mm -hmm. So, um, but she did love him. And she gave him the gift of the Beatles. When she convinced him he had music in his bones and he was destined to be famous. Thank you, Mom, because yeah. it changed the world. For sure. Man. Ooh, that's fascinating. That, yeah. I, I learned a lot today. I did too. <laughs> I, like, I feel this is great. So, okay, then let's let's put a stamp on it then. 156, I think I blew it. Am I, was, that, was that the right number? Did I say that right? Yeah. 156, I think I blew it. What do you think? Um... Come on, Julia. Uh, I don't know that I move into the top 100. I don't know. It's so hard. You are good at ranking things. I am not. I, I'm always like, yeah, this is the right. Uh, Thanks. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like. How about 100? You can put it in the last one. Just put it in. Um, okay. All right, I'll let you move it to the it top move 100. I, yeah. think, I think it needs to move up. Okay, I, mean, I don't know how I – I can't rearrange the rankings, but I'm going to take the L on this one. I'm, I'm going to take the loss. I blew it here. I mean, yeah, you did I it for – what was it, Octopus's Garden too? 
Yeah. You really blew I it. I think I goofed on Octopus's yeah. Garden. That's another yeah, big I think one. these are the two big ones that like. Should I choose to reassess everything at the end of this experiment? I feel like you should. In 20 years, whenever it ends. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be way higher. And you're and so, Jude, you're saying this one's top five for you, you think? Yeah. I mean, because Imagine doesn't tell you who John is. You don't know him any better after. A, mm. You don't know if he's even being sincere. Um, because at one point he said, let's see what all those kumbaya bastards will do with this one. <laughs> so you don't know whether he's really being sincere or not, but, and you don't know him if you listen to a lot of the songs that he writes, but mm. if you listen to this song, the story is out there. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's definitely in, in my top five and, and, you know, all of my top 50 are John Lennon songs. So mm-hmm. that. I don't have a lot of diversity. <laughs> so it comes as a surprise okay. to no one. Two, three, four. Tell me why. Yeah, that again. What do you do then? You made a mistake. I know you did. Oh, man. Well, Jude, before we wrap up for the evening, uh, do you have time for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Uh, top of your head. Your favorite song, Beatles song, obviously. Oh, uh, covers, it's cover song because I love the Beatles as a stage band. And I, it's not necessarily one that they wrote, but it's the way John sings it. It's Baby, It's You. Oh, God, Ooh. I love it. I'm totally down with yeah. that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of their early covers, and I get a lot of flack for that because I've got some of their covers like Summer Top 75 top 50 like Uh-oh. they're like my heart my real favorites and i get some flack for that so yeah Uh-oh. thank you for and the he's singing a song again oh yeah he's <laughs> just he kills it it's so good um your least yeah. favorite beatles song within you without you all right okay oh, okay sad. <laughs> <laughs> are you a george george person you know not really but i i i mean yes but more Paul, I think. I think You're I'm, a Paul I, girl. I think I'm a Paul girl. Um, but I like his like weirdo sort of psychedelic stuff. I think it's fun. It's okay now. I pr- yeah, I, well, you got to, in context, you know, I, I'm a North Louisiana girl and I am, you know, the, the nerd file uh, doing the books before school. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we got down and like, <laughs> right. What in the world is wrong with George Harrison? What? It, he has lost his mind. If you pick up my LP, there are no scratches on that track because I would pick it up, turn it to side two, Christine. and skip it. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Oh, that's well, yeah, funny. I mean, it makes sense. Like, if your introduction to the Beatles was the early stuff, the super poppy stuff, yeah. and then they got weird, it, it makes sense that you would be thrown off when they got very experimental as they sort of yeah. progressed in their career. So I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, tomorrow like, never knows. I have the luxury of looking at their catalog as a whole. There was no new right. Beatles. Song. Well, I mean, I guess the anthology stuff. Um, there was no, I guess, aside from the anthology, there was like a new song. Yeah, but you, like you a couple of new songs. For yeah, that. but there was like no new Beatles. There was no progression of the Beatles in my lifetime. Like their whole catalog existed already yeah. before I was born. So yeah. 
I, yeah. I, I yeah. don't have that, like, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they were I all mean, just the same playing field. Like, the, they all. Yeah. Existed. When Revolver comes out, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to like on this LP? Because I don't really like anything. What has happened to John? She said, she said, tomorrow never knows. He's lost his ever loving mind. So, <laughs> you know, it is my favorite. And you may, this may be a rapid fire question, but my favorite Beatles LP is live at BBC. That was my next question. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, Answered. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I can see that though. That's a that's a great record. And that was actually that was a new product in our lifetime too. Oh, was, was it? it live the, was that ninety two or ninety? What year was that? Yeah. Ninety three, yeah. maybe? It's early nineties. And yeah. I was living in Kansas City. I think it was ninety three. I think it was the first year I went to Liverpool. But it's so great. And again, John is so coy but revealing because you go back and listen to you really got a hold on me what does he say at the end of the song mother. you really got a hold on me mother mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh ah, yeah. yeah and she did that's the yeah. jokes that he always that he always makes have a little meaning behind them yeah wow yeah uh, how many times have you been to liverpool seven times and i miss it so much so, so much but um you know and we we made good friends. We were one night thrown out of a restaurant because Alan, we were with Alan Williams and Beryl Adams, who used to work for Brian and Nims, and she was married to Bob Wooler at one point. And Alan, when he started drinking, was he was going around from table to table and making everyone sing the Welsh national anthem. And they kindly asked us to leave. So, oh um, and I, we went to the, the year before we'd gone to a place to dance and I asked him to dance with me and he said, no. And I said, oh, come on, Alan. And he told me to F off. So <laughs> I have the, the <laughs> Alan Williams told me. <laughs> so, Can we make you a t-shirt? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, the man who know, gave the Beatles was, away and told me to F off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he was just such a wonderful person, though, and doesn't get the credit he deserves. For sure. Really. For sure. Do you have plans to go back anytime? Well, I have been locked up in this house for mm -hmm. the last two years because I have two very serious autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. And so even though I had to get three regular vaccines, not a booster, but three regular vaccines to get mm -hmm. any immunity at all. So I am still shut up in a house like I'm on house arrest but I don't know what I really did um yeah. but if it ever ends I'm going and I'm okay I'm also going to Ireland because John loved Ireland and wanted to live there that's where he was going to retire so mm -hmm. awesome. one of these days yeah we should go at the same time though it'd be so fun you know that we we went in 2017 and it was the first time I'd ever go the first time we'd ever gone it was the trip I'd wanted to make for you know since I was 10 I don't know um and oh my god we had such a good time and you will probably appreciate this knowing New Orleans pretty well. It reminded me so much of New Orleans. Yes. Um, the it's... people were like so similar. Uh, the architecture was similar. Just the feeling of everything had that same kind of like gritty uh, working class friendly. Yeah. Everything just seemed so familiar and we felt so at home the whole time we were there. Like we had such a that great time. That is so funny. I never, I mean, I only really feel at home, home, home when I'm in Liverpool and New Orleans. And I never connected the two of them. Yep. But 
you're so right. They mm-hmm. are so Philly. Philly is a lot like Liverpool as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it has the same clock tower in the center of town. It was founded by the Irish. The Irish built most of Philly. So it has that same feel as well. Very friendly, very warm, but mm-hmm. I never I never thought about New Orleans. You're you know, right. that's funny. My father, who's from New Orleans, um, moved to Philadelphia, and that's where he met yeah. my mother. And they lived in Philadelphia for a long time. They, like, owned a deli. Like, they still have the menu from their deli, like, in the kitchen Aww. at their house. It's very cute. And then um, w- w- after they got together, they started coming down here to visit his family, who all lived here still. And they, she fell in love with it here. And after they yeah. got married, they, she was like, uh, we're just – can we just go move to New Orleans? And he's like, okay. So they moved <laughs> back here. They came here, got married, moved back here, had kids – this is why I'm here now. So it's funny that the, that three little connection, you know, of the yeah. Liverpool, New Orleans, Philadelphia. They're very, very similar. similar. Yeah. That's very funny. Yeah. I, I love that. I never, I mean, I really, I, I'd already, I lived in Philly for several, about six years, so I could see it there, but I've always, I've never made that connection, but I know I'm drawn to New Orleans. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. And it's there funny, I think we both sort of had the same thought at the same time of just, like, being very comfortable. And we kind of looked at each other. We were like, is, is this weird? Like, do you yeah. feel just very comfortable, very comfortable here? And he was like, yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. like, okay, <laughs> it's not just me. Like, I remember not knowing where we were going, but never feeling like I was lost. Mm. Like, no. everything felt like I could, I, I can figure out where I'm going. Um, yeah. It just, it was a very strange feeling. And maybe it's because I've, you know, read so much about the city and seen so much about it in my head and in documentaries and in books. Um, but it all felt familiar from word one. And everybody we met made you feel like you were at home. And it just – and when I yep. say at home, I meant like made me feel like I was at home in New Orleans. Right. Uh, which was that such a great right. feeling. So like we were That's there for, for three days and it was like, okay, well, we have to come back and spend mm-hmm. like a full week here. Yes. And, you know, just really immerse ourselves. Like we absolutely love well, it. So. When the first year that we went – Right before we got on the plane to come back, I went to the bathroom and my husband said, it was very John-esque, you aren't going to stay in there, are you? You are coming back, right? (laughs) And I mean, I wanted to go back. We were there in March and I wanted to go back for the August fetal week, like five months later. He's like, are you kidding me? Because this was thousands and thousands of dollars. We can't go back like three months later, you know? So we did end up going back every March for seven years. Yeah. And um, it is, if you ever go again, I would recommend that last week of March because Sefton Park, where Stu lived right on Sefton Park, and Sefton Park is where Fred and Julia met, um, they plant over a million, I am not exaggerating, a million daffodil bulbs, and they bloom that week. Oh, wow. A million daffodils in that park. It is something to behold. That's wild. But it's a wonderful place. Yeah. We had planned to go back this year for our our joint 40th (laughs) birthdays. Um, (laughs) But obviously traveling's not on the cards yet. But uh, hopefully maybe next year. I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm keeping my eyes on the ticket. I have a a ticket alert. (laughs) (laughs) And then I get emailed whenever there's a good deal. And I'm like, I'm not quite ready to pull the trigger yet because I feel like restrictions are still sort of changing yeah. often yeah but, but yeah. i'm watching i'm watching i do remember on the <laughs> yeah. train back from liverpool to london like looking on my phone at like wonder 
what houses cost and <laughs> what's the average cost of living here? <laughs> I've even picked one out. I, I, of course, there are people who are living in it, but you know, never mind that. We For the right price, down. everyone's got a price. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's at the corner of Men Love and Vale. Pete shot and lived on Vale. John, mm-hmm. of course, a few doors down. I love the house. It's a great location. Uh, there's a golf course across the street. Five beautiful two-story two drums. I- I'm ready. Those right. people just need to go. <laughs> uh, your favorite memory associated with the Beatles or a Beatles song or anything Beatle-related. Your favorite memory. Your all-time favorite Beatle memory. The best night of my life. Uh, we are in Liverpool during the premiere of the movie Backbeat. And we are fortunate enough to get tickets to the red carpet thing. Mm. And it really was the red carpet cordoned off. And, you know, that had a great new dress for it. And, you know, it was just a great night. Well, afterwards, we were invited to the John Lennon bar for dinner and dancing afterwards. And we were also invited to a party across the street at the Cavern Club. So we went to the John Lennon bar. We ate dinner. Alan Williams was seated next to me and Beryl Adams and Beryl Marsden's sister was at our table and she kept telling us about Beryl Marsden's re- hit record and playing it over and over. Some of the searchers were there. Tony Jackson was there. And it was just a fun night. And so after dinner, we said, we really need to at least go to the Cavern Club and say thank you to them for inviting us and stay a few minutes and we'll come back. Well, when we came back, the owner of the John Lennon Bar and his wife had arrived. And they had taken our seats and we said, okay, no problem. No problem. We'll just stand off to the side. Dinner was over anyway. And they were going to push the tables back in a few minutes and have dancing. And so we'll just stand over here. And Alan Williams says, get out of Jude's chair. That's her chair. (laughs) And the owner of the John Lennon bar says, I'm not, I own this place. She can stand. And Alan shoves him as hard as he can and they start fist fighting and my husband says to me if I had told you when you were nine years old at Hershey Drive Elementary that the Beatles manager and the owner of the John Lennon bar would be fist fighting over you would you have believed it and I said happiest night of my life (laughs) that is fantastic oh my gosh oh my gosh absolutely bonkers I love it so Jude this has been absolutely a blast so volume five is out right that's the one that's out, in, it is out. as it's of October? Two weeks. Yes, it, it came out, it arrived on John's birthday, and then my husband and I went through the process of, he did the cover art for it. So we both signed the book and dated it, wrapped it and boxed it, and we have, that's all we've been doing for the last three weeks is that. Until last uh, Tuesday night when we wanted to celebrate by going out to run and bike ride and he ended up in the hospital. Oh, <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, no. It's been, we have had a busy, busy, busy three weeks. But yes, the new book, Shades of Life, is a two-parter. They're mm-hmm. gonna, this first book goes from the 1st of January up to the moment that they board the plane for the North American tour of 65. It's that early part of 65. So making help John writing a Spaniard in the works. They're still renovating Kenwood. They go on the European tour to Spain and, and to Paris and to Italy. And they are nominated for the NBE and John almost turns it down. He's so close to turning it down that Brian has made a plan B. I mean, <laughs> that it's that close. Uh, Paul is written yesterday and it's a solo and that it's changing the dynamics of the band drastically. Uh, there's so much going on in this book that 
I'm up to 820 pages and we're halfway through the year. And so I said, I got to stop and make this a two-parter. So I'm, that Shades of Life part one is the first part of 65 and part two is going to be the last part of 65 and 66 up to the last note of Candlestick. Because after that, they're not the same band. When right. they play that last note, they change. So um, it is, I got five more books ahead of me to complete it because oh it goes gosh. from his birth wow. all the way up till December of 1980. So how, yeah. how long does it generally take you to, to get a book ready? I know obviously you, you first one was 2007. So we're at, I guess, what is that? 14 years now? Is that, is my math right there? Yes. Yes. So we're yeah. looking at five books in 14 years. So that's yeah. about two and a half, three years between yeah three years yeah and it's funny because you know how facebook sends you that what you were doing three years ago mm -hmm. and the day that this new book came out it popped up a thing that said three years ago today and it showed me at the post office mailing the other book so <laughs> nice. <laughs> every three years if i stay on my routine if i write every single day if i research every single day I mean, when i go to bed i go to bed with stacks of books the way i did in high school and i'm studying and then underlining and taking notes and, and earmarking. Um, in fact, I'm reading a book right now at Shea Stadium because that's what I'm getting ready to write. And I have it so earmarked that my husband picked it up and said, you would have been better to earmark the pages you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it is, if I stay on schedule, I can do it every three years. Wow. But it's very slow because you don't want people to think this is fan fiction. So every sentence has to be footnoted. How does she know that? Well, here it is. Lewison, page 232. Hunter Davies, page 131. I have to footnote every sentence. It's mm -hmm. slow. Wow. Goodness. It's But that's so amazing because it's so... It's so detailed, and even to keep it in a narrative in a narrative flow like that, it, it's it's it's. I think that makes it probably such a, a much better read, as opposed to just reading fact after fact after fact. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that people feel as if they're there. I hope that they, you know, experience what it was like to be standing in that dugout, looking at what's going on at Shea Stadium when John said to Brucey Morrow. Cousin Brucey, is this dangerous? And <laughs> Cousin Brucey said, yeah, it is. He said, but they have 2,000 policemen, but there are, you know, well more than 2,000 people here. And John says, we're not going to do it. I mean, they they are, they almost back out. Wow. And you can see why. I mean, they were shaking, literally shaking. I want people to feel what that was like. Everybody was jumping. The whole stadium, I have 50 different sources saying they were jumping. The whole stadium is jumping and it's shaking. And there's a feeling that there is real danger in the air. That's what I want people to do. Wow. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we're done here, I am, uh, I'm PayPaling to get my copy of this book. Cause this sounds fantastic. <laughs> no, you're not because I'm sending you one anyway. So oh, I'll take it. <laughs> you guys a um, signed and dated copy. Oh, thank and you. so if you'll just email, email me your Addy. I'll get sure. it to you right away. Thank, oh, thank you. you thank That's you so, so awesome. much for having me You're on the so show. Kind. Thank you for doing this. It's been so much fun. Where can everybody, what's the best place to order the book? JohnLennonSeries.com. Wonderful. JohnLennonSeries.com. So cool. you, it will be on Amazon at the beginning of next week, but they always charge more. Mm -hmm. And I get all the orders, whether people order from Amazon or whether they order from my web, website, but I always charge less and I really make an effort to write a special card to each person 
So it, it doesn't go out without a special, and I don't use the same inscription over and over. I try to write mm. something to that individual. So. Lovely. That's so, That's so cool. Aww. That's so I cool. And where can everyone keep up with you on social media? Are you an active social media uh, oh, user yes, as far I'm, as I'm on, publicly? Yeah. Jude Sutherland Kessler on Facebook and at Jude Kessler on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Insta, wherever. You know, it's always, Wonderful. I think Insta is um, John Lennon series. Okay. Beautiful. We'll put all that in the show notes. Everybody can follow along. Jude, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for making some time to do this with Thank us. This has guys. been an absolute blast. And blowing our minds, basically. Yeah. <laughs> just like, I feel like I'm a little speechless tonight. Right? I'm just like, oh, I just learned so much. Yeah. Goodness. Well, you you are the namesake of a person who was really remarkable and who really changed the world, Julia, because you were saying sorry for my name, but I mean, without her, without that music in the bones thing, mm-hmm. we're SOL, you know, yeah, we don't have to sure. be So thank you for being Julia. Thank you so much, Jonathan, <laughs> for having me. John and Julia. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's weird, hon. That's a little strange. That's weird. So- I'm not saying I was, yeah, I was looking for a girl named Julia, but I just sort of happened, happened in your, just happened. in your orbit. So good. And, and was cute. It's true. <laughs> That's also an added bonus. Jude, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. And if we, uh, if we make our way up to, uh, to Shreveport, we'll come say hi. And if you come down to New Orleans, come say hi. Yeah. Let's get together. Oh, I will. Be a blast. I will. And you guys do that too. Thank you very much. For sure. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, Jude. Jude Kessler, everybody. Holy smokes. Y'all, I feel like my, the way I read into these songs has not been thorough. I feel like I need to peel deeper into the onion on some of these songs. Mm. I mean, I think you, you listen to something so many times, you know, you stop digging on deeper meanings once it's kind of connected wherever it does in your, in your brain, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, uh, you, you kind of you settle on your own truth yeah, to, yeah. to the song. Yeah. You, you, your brain decides what it means. Like, obviously like certain songs, like, okay, Julia, obviously about his mother, What? you know, like you start to put those things together as a fan. Um, but you know, one of the greatest things about doing the show is, is talking to people who, are doing that research and digging deeper into things and then kind of having that moment of like someone showing you a a painting you've seen a thousand times for the first time, you know? (laughs) And it's like, holy crap, this is uh, fantastic. I love it. What an absolute blast. So everybody, do yourselves a favor and go pick up her newest book, Shades of Life, um, volume five in the series of the John Lennon series. I can't wait to uh, to get ours and read it. This is going to be so much fun. I'm super duper excited about it, and it's so weird. As I I don't know I don't know why that memory of seeing like a poster for her book release or something 13 years ago at a at a bar in Shreveport or whatever you know wherever it was I forget. Yeah, that's um, because wait, is it Monroe? No, it it's because Monroe? I, I think it was Shreveport because all the covers are like a hand drawn. A uh, picture of John, mm-hmm. and I saw it like from across a, 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 a bar, or, like a room, or wherever I was, and just you know, pictures of Beatles tend to draw my attention. No. And I was like, well, why, why is that in this small bar in some small town in North Louisiana? And I was like, huh, 
Someone from North Louisiana writes books about the Beatles. Well, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? But man, man alive, I tell you, learning something new every episode on this podcast. Love it. I love it. Friends, what do you think about Tell Me Why at number 156? Is it too high? Is it too low? Did I blow it? I think I did. Let us know what you think. I didn't do the porridge thing for you. Let us know what you think uh, on our Facebook page, on in the comments section, or on Twitter, on Instagram. If you're not following us on all those places, we're on Facebook at... Ranking the Beatles. We're on Twitter at... Ranking Beatles. And we're on Instagram at... Ranking the Beatles. And of course, you can follow everything we do on our home, uh, at, at our home on the website, www.rankingthebeatles.com. That's right. So, friends... I'm giving you my radio voice. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> very nice, very nice. WRTB. <laughs> it's, it's very like NPR, though. This is WRTB. It's 12 o'clock, and this is your weather update with Julia Prius. <laughs> I don't know. We've gone off the rails. I apologize. <laughs> it's time for dinner. All right, folks. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, I'm Jonathan. Oh, and I'm Julia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to get her out of here. Y'all have a great one. Adios. Bye, y'all.